on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Ahoy there, welcome aboard to another episode of The Big Fish. Great to be back behind the tiller. Ken Orr, fly fishing legend, has our first cast this morning on The Big Fish. Stinkers back, battling the mighty mangrove jack. And the mangrove jack are winning. And you'll meet a fishing author on a mission to save lives, particularly of the rockfishers and the cold community here in Australia. Our first cast this morning on The Big Fish is one of Australia's longest-serving fishing guides and a real pioneer of guided fishing in this country. He's also a great communicator and writer, uh, with years of on-air radio experience doing a fishing show on one of our commercial networks around the nation, and like many in the game, can spin a very good fishing yarn. Tasmania's Ken Orr, welcome to the Big Fish. Good morning, Scott. How are you, mate? I love it when people have a name that suits their job, too. Um, you dip your oars in the water on plenty of occasions, I'd reckon, Ken. Uh, yeah, well, I, I play on the word simply awesome, O-R-R-S-O-M-E. <laughs> Yes. Look, uh, you were telling me, and, and I thought this was fantastic, one of the most exciting trends you've seen are the number of women now getting into fly fishing. And according to one of your, your best guides, Ross, the river boss, uh, they're a joy to guide. Why is that? Oh, absolutely. I, I would much rather teach a, a lady any day to a man. They, they've got a sensitivity. Uh, they listen and uh, they're keen to learn. And a man, he uses his brute strength, and no matter what you say to him, he, he wants to force the rod. Well, you don't. As you know, it's, it's touch and feel, and, and women just have that. Um, this past Sunday, we had 14 uh, ladies to do a ladies' day, and uh, it, it went off fantastically. How many female guides are there now? We often speak to April Vokey and, and Joe Starling, who are both uh, really... Brilliant fly fishers. Uh, April's a, a female guide uh, yeah. over in North America more so than Australia. But um, do you have any female guides in Tasmania? Uh, as far as I'm aware, I, I'm the only operator that has a female guide. And uh, yes, Tracy is her name. And she's a great teacher, um, great organiser, and just absolutely loves to be on the water. One thing that Ross the River Boss told me when we are out uh, and about catching a few giant fish, I think the water levels have all dropped by about a metre in Tasmania. I took so many fish. Um, <laughs> let, let most of them go. Let most of them go. I ate a couple, which is okay, I think, Ken. I hope that doesn't earn, earn the ire of some of the catch and release crew. But No, absolutely not. I mean, you've, you've, you've got to measure your tape. There's no doubt about that. If you're on a, a, a fragile stream, don't take everything you catch. But in lakes like Roddy Lagoon and Arthur's Lake, Great Lake, if you want to feed a fish, there's no reason you can't take them. My daughter who lives in Hobart just loves trout. She she grew up eating trout when I lived down in the southwest slopes and, and snowy mountains and uh, particularly rainbow trout. When she was a little girl, she, she loved the rainbow trout. Many people don't like them, um, including Ross, uh, the, the mate I was fishing with. He, he doesn't rate them a, at all. He lets everything go. <laughs> Uh, well, we should point out that Ross is one of my guides and has been for over 10 years. Um, he he can walk uh, on water. Ross can walk can, on water. He can walk on water. He's, he's one of the best 
sight fishes, polaroid is that I know. It's phenomenal. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm a bit of the same ilk. If I'm out there chasing fish all day with a client, I really don't want to see one on my plate of a night. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing is too, you take a few when it works out. We, we were late in the day um, on, on a spot with a big population of fish, you know, taking a couple wouldn't hurt at all for the, for the plate. And it was late in the day, so you're not carrying them around on your back all day. You, you know, you, and you clean them there on the spot and then, then take them home, put them in the esky, you know, just near the end of the, of the, the session. It's got to sort of time out. And sometimes, you know, oh, it, it doesn't, doesn't work. Absolutely, Scott. You, there is no way you can kill a fish and put it in a bag or whatever uh, and then deal with it a couple of hours later. They deteriorate very quickly. If you're killing fish, really, they need to go in an esky of ice pretty well straight away to, to maintain the quality of them. Yeah, 100%. I think if you're going to take a fish for the table, res- respect it. We're speaking with Ken Orr in Tasmania who started fly fishing when he was uh, uh, a wee tacker and uh, one of our original fly fishing guides in this country. Now we see more and more uh, people getting into guided fishing and, and all forms of fishing too. Originally it was a fly fishing thing in, in Tasmania. They were sort of the, the pioneers. But it's it's come a long way since you started out, Ken. Oh, it, it has. I mean, um, yeah, I started the Guides Association in Tasmania along with um, a well-known angler and guide, Noel Jetson. Noel was actually my guiding mentor. There was no doubt that he helped me out a great deal. But we, we set up Tasmanian Trap Guides and Lodges uh, back in the season of 74, seven, uh, sorry, 79, 80. And uh, that's when we basically started guiding in this country. I, the, there wasn't guides out there um, catering to, to visiting anglers. And um, so we decided that we would do it. I, Noel Jetson ran a little tackle shop in Cressy with, uh, and tied many, many flies there. And he, he took quite a few people onto the rivers there, onto the Liffey and uh, the St. Pat's. They were always asking him to take him for a fish. So he decided that he'd start guiding. I went down there to meet him. He was a great mate of mine. I'd known him for a long time. And I said, I'm resigning from my current position. Uh, and uh, he said, why don't you become a guide? I said, well, yeah, <laughs> there's no customers. He said, no, we'll work together. And we did. Um, and he helped me and we started the first fly fishing schools back in 83, 84, uh, where we taught fly fishing. And it really all started from there. I mean, I'm, I've been very lucky. I started fly fishing with my father uh, when I was seven. I wasn't allowed to have any other rod in my hand except the fly rod. I'm a third generation fly fisher and uh, my sons are a fourth generation now. So I didn't land my first fish until I was 10 years of age. I'd hooked fish, I lost fish, I fell over, I did all sorts of things with them. But when I actually landed a fish uh, when I was 10, it was on Penstock Lagoon, and that morning I landed seven fish. Uh, unbelievable. And that's what started this, uh, you know, this whole program. This, this, <laughs> this, this love this, affair, your, life, oh, your life's yeah. work. And Ken, can you remember that vividly? Can you remember every spot on those brown trout? I I remember it 
vividly. I remember clearly the fly that I caught them on. And at that stage, I didn't know what the fly was. I got I got Dad's uh, throwaways, basically. They'd caught fish and he, he was throwing them away and I got them. Uh, same as I got a very old cane rod and a silk line. And no, no truth that you you were so you're so old. They were using horsehair leaders. No truth in that, Ken. <laughs> no, there's no truth in that. Um, but that does go back to the first recorded uh, fly fisher, which was Dame Julian Burner back in the 1600s, and she was plaiting uh, horsehair to make a, a fishing line. So it goes back a long way. It, you know, it's many people don't know that the first recorded fly fisher was female so uh you know that's an interesting interesting thing but um the fly i used that morning um i later found out was the iron blue dun um which really when the canids are hatching is an excellent fly but i i didn't know that at the time and i just put it on because i i thought it looked a bit like the flies that were flying around and well that's how you do it yeah um, yeah and I, i landed seven fish and that started this whole journey where it's been my sport, my profession, uh, everything, you know. So yeah. so that's a small upwing mayfly pattern and the fish were sipping them off the top. And, and, and it's hard in the lakes, though, isn't it? Because they zip around a bit. They don't uh, oh. necessarily track in a straight line. It might rise yeah. there, but it, it's you're, not necessarily going to rise there. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, Scott. But I don't, and I really don't believe they actually see the, see the, the fly. They... The flyers are that thick on the on the water that they just drop down a matter of an inch or two under the water, stick their snout up and take on rhythm. So if you can work out the rhythm and put the fly in front of them at that sort of six inches, eight inches, ten inches, whatever their rhythm is, you catch more fish than actually, you know, just trying to fish at the fish. So you use the rhythm method. There are many people uh, who use that. They call them parents these days. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, Scott. But I think we're talking about fish. Aren't we? Oh, we are. Yes, <laughs> shouldn't get it. Get our minds out of the gutter. It's the big so, fish with uh, fly fishing pioneer Ken, or in Tasmania. Uh, and Ken, you'll laugh at this, but we're on this beautiful lake, uh, not far uh, into the southwest. I guess I won't say where it is. It's a pretty famous tourist hotspot. Actually, it's full of fish, and uh, it's joined up to this other lake through a little rapid and. Uh, mountains all around, crystal clear day, and the fish are rising to to black spinners. And uh, Ross, the river boss, has, has given me a, a, a butte black spinner invitation that uh, looked the goods, and I've cast it out blindly. We've spotted a lot of fish and cast to them and caught a few, but in this case I was just casting to the edge of a weed bed where they were rising. And up came the fish and grabbed the fly, and I waited till it turned, and I've hit it. And I feel the weight of it. And I said, oh, that's a good fish. Ross, and oh, it's gone. It's gone. Anyway, I've cast for another few minutes. Then checked the end of the line. I'd snapped off on the... So you can get it. You can get everything right and still be wrong. Yeah, well, you, you can. And, uh, yeah, I mean, those spinner feeders are not necessarily that easy to catch. Uh, as many people might know, uh, the spinner is the final uh, change of the mayfly, they go through a, a number of metamorphoses and from nymph to mayfly to, to spinner. And here we've got black spinners and orange spinners. Uh, and when they're when they're laying their eggs on in the water, they have to bounce on the water to actually inject their the eggs through the meniscus of the water. 
So that bouncing action on the water really gets the trout going and uh, can be very exciting, but, um, yeah, hard to catch sometimes. We've spoken about the best clients you've had and uh, beyond a doubt some of the, the, the women, the modern women taking it up. Ross was saying uh, particularly enjoyed the fact that if you're a busy working woman with a family, you you want to have fun. You know, you go out there, men have got this ego trip going, I've got to catch more fish, it's got to be a competition, I've got to prove that I can do it or beat the guide or beat my mate or whatever. But he said the attitude was so refreshing. I've come out here into the beautiful mountains I'm going to have fun. What What about the worst uh, person you've ever guided, though? Have you got a story about the... I mean, you've often got to be a psychologist and a, uh, uh, a psychiatrist and uh, uh, an anger counsellor. I mean, you know, who was the worst one? You, you've got to be all those things. You really do, Scott. Um, and, you know, you've, you've, you've got to take yourself back to the anglers or the learners level. If you expect a, a, an angler to fish or a learner to fish the way you do, you're crazy and you'll send yourself around the bend in terms of guiding. So you take yourself back to, the, to a basic level and then nurture the angler on with, uh, with, with what it is that does he should be doing right. And um, I've had a couple that oh, I've actually given their money back to them and said, look, you know, <laughs> I've, I've, got to be, I've got to be honest, you are never going to cast the fly as long as your bum points to the ground. <laughs> and, and, uh, but I've guided thousands of, of anglers by now, and uh, I think I've only given the money back to two, and they just couldn't be taught to fly fish. They just couldn't. They physically couldn't listen and do what you required of them. And it, it does happen. Um, no women. I mean, every, every lady. I mean, I, I was instrumental in teaching um, Joe Starling fly fish. Oh, she's just in love with it now. We speak to Joe. She's an absolute regular on the big fish. She's actually been down in Tasmania for the last uh, a month or so doing what we're talking about. And uh, she, she's just gone through the roof with it. Isn't it interesting? There's a woman who cut her teeth on giant barramundi and Saratoga and big pelagic fish in the, the tropics. And uh, I reckon that she's totally in love with fly fishing for trout. Oh, fly fishing for trout. Well, she's competing now. She's, she was actually in a competition on the Tiana on uh, the weekend um, for Fly Fish Australia. And, um, yeah, she's absolutely committed to, to fly casting, fly fishing, and she loves the trout. And, of course, Starlo, um, I taught him to Polaroid back in 1985 at London Lakes when he was a, a journo. Now, Jimmy um, Allen had a bit bit to do with Polaroiding. Who, who, was, uh, the, who was the first Polaroider, really? Well, the person that introduced me to it was a guy called John Philbrick, who uh, was a lawyer um, in Victoria. But at the time, he was in university. And I'm talking, we're going back to when I was probably 18. And we used to camp at Penstock at Christmas. And Jimmy Allen, John Philbrick, and a couple of other guys would come over and camp, and we'd all fish together. But uh, I watched um, Jim and uh, John Philbrick walking through Penstock, just wading, and then suddenly stopping and casting and hooking a fish, and then watched them a bit more and a bit more. And anyway, I went down to find out what they were doing, and they said they were Polaroiding. Well, I'd never Polaroided. 
So I got some glasses and um, the rest is history. I started Polaroiding and, uh, yeah, Jim Allen, um, we used to fish as a team, him him on one side and Ling on the other side. And as soon as you tried to get your fly out, he'd have his line across the top of you. He, <laughs> he, he was He's a, a cormorant. <laughs> he, he, yeah, uh, he's super fast, super accurate, and he was he was great fun. And uh, yeah, I I remember one night uh, it was absolutely pouring with rain, thunderstorms, and I'd gone to bed early in the in the camp, and I don't know, it must have been about eleven o'clock. The, the old zipper rattles, and Ken, Ken, come out, come out, have a look at this. And there's Jim standing, soaking wet, absolutely drenched, with this fish of about oh. Nine, ten pounds. It was a great fish. Uh, he caught it in Lagoon of Islands uh, that night, but he just had to show. He just had to show somebody. Have so, you ever uh, met a more enthusiastic bloke? Uh, it, no, we we, no, we no. sat around the fire with him up at the up at the Great Lake Hotel, and, and just um, just an absolute raconteur, a great uh, storyteller, a, a, a really uh, loved company. Yeah. Oh, Jim's. Phenomenal, and he's great, a great uh, provider of knowledge uh, about our fishery. Uh, he, he doesn't mind sharing it, and um, yeah, I've I've known him as I said since I was eighteen. The other character uh, is is the old Scotsman, the gruff old rugged fella, Bill Beck. Bill passed away. Uh, must be two years ago now. Yeah, yeah. Bill taught uh, me really taught me how to fly fish back in. Uh, the early 80s, uh, we, we spent a bit of time with Bill. You were lucky he didn't fish over the top of you. Oh, he, he was so funny. I mean, yeah. he was he was disgusted. I'd come down from Townsville. It was a, it's an interesting story, actually. Malcolm Florence, who I think's passed on as well, was one of the, the pioneers of fishography, really, of, you know, good good quality filming Absolutely. of fishing. Yeah. And, 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 I, and Malcolm was in Townsville, and my uh, wife-to-be's brother went to school with his son, and, and so I had a contact. So I... I rang him up because he caught. He went on this quest to catch the thousand-pound marlin, the something else, the the ten-pound trout. Um, so he caught the thousand-pound marlin off cans. He caught the ten-pound trout in Lake Pedder, which was full of the Levi- leviathans of the time. You know, there were twenty-pound yeah. plus fish. Uh, and, and and so I wanted to go and, and catch from Townsville and catch this, you know, a ten-pound trout in in Pedder. So I ring up Malcolm Florence and I said. Tell me all about the fish. And he was very vague. And he said, oh, look, I, I, I don't know much. Ring Bill Beck. So I ring Bill Beck and he said, the bugger didn't hook it. He said, <laughs> I caught that fish the night before and tethered yeah, it. And then yeah. he put it on his line and filmed it and said he caught it. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was Bill. He, he was a Lake Pedder specialist. He, that's where he started his guiding was at Lake Pedder. Those fish were phenomenal, Ken. I mean, can people truly understand how big they were unless they tangled with one? No, no, they can't. They were phenomenal and tremendous condition. And they they were putting on the best part of four to five pounds a year. I mean, they were just incredible growth rates with the eating, feeding on galaxia and native yabbies. And, uh, you the, know, the mud big, eye, the mud eye hatches, uh, Bill oh, was yeah, saying, were just hatches. incredible. He was a smoker at the time. He said every time he'd throw his cigarette butt in a 10 pound trout, he'd swallow it. Just about. Yeah, they, <laughs> they used to take cigarette butts. I've, I've seen that down there myself. And yeah, I've, I've caught. I caught a lot of fish there in those days. And, a very simple I, fly, I, wasn't it? A little little piece of wine bottle cork tied on a hook. Yeah, yeah, oh, it was. And 
they just love the mud eyes. And to see, to see, you know, 10 to 15 pound trout taking flies off the top is just unbelievable. The only other place I've seen that was uh, the Lagoon of Ireland, where, you know, you could catch fish 8 to 12 pounds and they'd be sipping mayflies off the top, which was tremendously exciting. <laughs> and um, I, rem- I remember uh, Noel Jetson was camped down there and he caught a lovely fish about nine pound and a guy came along and uh, wanted to have a look at it and Noel showed him. He said, oh, do you mind taking a photo of me with this? And uh, Noel did. And um, about two months later, a new guide started up with the picture of him standing there with the big fish on the, fr- on the front <laughs> of his brochure. You rotter! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, Oh yeah, boy, it does, it does happen. But I've done oh many many uh, films for uh, TV um, on fishing. You know, I used to work with Rex and uh, um, Paul Worsling, and you know, and I've done a lot for American TV. And really, I've never worked with anyone that's actually set up the thing like uh, you were talking about, Bill. You know, that if they catch the fish and then they give it to them the next morning. Everything we've ever done has been as it happens. And while that can be really difficult at times. Oh, look, you, you start a camera going, it's a guaranteed way to, to put down the fish, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it, it can be. <laughs> they don't play to the script, Ken. They don't play to the script. No, well, if you uh, look at that 1985 film, uh, Troutfish Tasmania, which was the first film really done on our trout fishery. Um, You'll see me there as a much, much younger man. But we were using uh, cameramen then with pure film, big cameras. And uh, I think the cameras were worth something like 30 grand a piece. And filming on one of the small rivers yeah. in the northwest, uh, one of the cameramen took a tumble and <laughs> we, we drowned a big camera. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> oh, gee, it's, it's a, a long way. Uh, we've come a long way. A lot of water under the bridge uh, when it comes to fishography. Now everyone's uh, you know got a GoPro uh, on their vest and oh, and yeah. they're they're a, they're an expert. Hey Ken, it's been a lovely chat. I, I really uh, enjoy hearing these stories. And, and as someone who truly is a pioneer uh, of guided fishing in this country, thanks for sharing some time with us and many more fish to come. Ken, yeah, well, love to. Um, pleased to have a chat always. If you. Want another chat down the line? Give us a yell. I'm only too happy. I know where you are. If, you, if you're not on the stream, you'll be uh, having a chat. Tight lines, buddy. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. Ken Orr there, a fantastic fisherman and uh, a real pioneer of guided fishing in this country. It's the big fish. <laughs> Walk asleep from my eyes It's a weekend I can drop my disguise Better get it moving Before the sun Wonder what's on the missus list I bring my flat it I wish I better tune in To the big feet 
the big fish with Scott Levi, ABC Local Radio New South Wales, 702 ABC Sydney, 666 ABC Canberra. Coming up on the Big Fish, Stinker has been doing battle with the mighty mangrove jack on the north coast of New South Wales. And the state of play at the moment, the score, mangrove jack 5, Stinker 2. We'll take you there. Coming up, and also a wonderful author who's using fishing to save lives. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find him? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. Hey, g'day, Scott. How are you going? Ah, oh, going very well, actually. Had a fantastic break, caught lots of fish. Had a lot of fun. Uh, Stinker, I believe there's been a, a very unfair contest taking place on the Tweed. Stinker versus the mangrove jacks of the system. What's the score? What's the score, well, mate? Yes, well, I'm, at the moment, mangrove jack five, uh, Stinker two. <laughs> now, so I'm getting, <laughs> to put it in, in simpler terms, I have hooked seven mangrove jack. Five are out there in the river laughing their heads off at me, and two ended up in my frying pan. So, uh, but uh, I'm on the verge of jumping in the sea and trying to grab them by the throat. <laughs> I'm trying everything. But, uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a typical mangrove jack fisher. There are some very, very good Fishers here for mangrove jack in the tweed system, and they they know when to fish, where to fish. They're generally tossing lures or soft plastics or hard bodies, and they're using pretty strong line. And when the jacks pull, uh, the good fishers pull in the opposite direction, and the hardest puller generally wins. Well, in my case, I'm not that sort of. Uh, that's not my style. I uh, <laughs> what I've been doing. And I've been changing night after night. I do things differently. But basically, I set a line for them. That's what I do. I, the, where I stay here, the old family home, is on the Terranora Lakes and it's 15 metres from the water. Um, so I can sit in the pretty much in the kitchen and fish out the window if I wished. Um, so I thought, right, here we go. So I've set a good 30-pound uh, line and I uh, put on a little mullet on the 30-pound line and I threw it out and I come back next day. Well, the 30-pound line is just that that went like cotton. and <laughs> no, So there's one. I thought, oh, that's, that's bad luck. And then the worst possible thing happened. The next night I caught one. Well, 
that really fires you up. You think, whack, I know all about it now. Um, well, then the next three or four nights in a row, they, I just got towed up. I went heavier line. You know, I fished longer hours. I did everything. I had better bait. Oh, gee, nothing could go wrong. Well, it did. Every, it went wrong every time. Gee, they're strong. They are incredibly strong fish. <laughs> and they hit like a steam train, don't they? I spent a lot of time living in Townsville and catch them up in the, in the creeks and, and rivers. And they have this really smart tactic of when you throw a lure near them, They'll come out from the snag, turn around, and hit it flat out, heading back to the snag, and and it's all over, bang, bang, bush, bang, in a, in a second, you've you've smashed. Well, that's that's happening to me pretty much every night. Well, not every night, but but the nights that I uh, I said I think I'm going to catch one, everything's perfect, uh, conditions are ideal, and I wake up in the morning and nothing. I did catch one. Um, not so long ago, a couple of days ago, I when I first came here, I've been here since before Christmas, and this was before the rains came too, and there were some beautiful whiting and blue swimmer crabs in the system, and right up until the heavy rain, uh, I was getting beautiful whiting and, and blue swimmer crabs. But following the rain, the mud crabs have moved in in big numbers and the mangrove jack. So, oh, Gee, it's been a total. It's been like fishing in two different methods over a five-week period. But I did catch another one. The second one I got, I was fishing with six-pound line. <laughs> this just, you know, this is amazing. Um, this is crazy stuff. I was using six-pound line to catch um, whiting over the sand flats as the tide was rolling in on dusk in Terranora Lakes. And I had a uh, whiting hook on and no lead at all, absolutely no lead, because the tide had just turned and it wasn't running very fast. So I tossed it out and I put the rod in the rod holder. Well, zing, that is almighty. The rod bent. It reminded me of the snapper when I fish out in front of the lighthouse at Fingal Bay. The tip of the rod has just about hit the water and the and I didn't have much drag on. So this thing's taken me way across into the lake. And I finally, I wasn't in a hurry to bring it in. I thought, well, there's nothing that can go wrong here unless I pull the hook out because there's no snags. There were no snags there. So I just took it nice and steady, nice and steady, and to the, to the edge of the boat. And I thought, gee, that's a big brim. No, it's not. It's a mangrove jack. Oh, whoopee. So I scooped it up and it was on it. Look, it be, wouldn't be struggled to be two kilo, I reckon. But I tell you what, can they go? It's like, it's like hooking one of those jet skis that seem to be far too many on the water. <laughs> and Stinker, how, how do you like them in the kitchen? Oh, they're magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. I just use a, a batter or, or a crumb, or you can just fillet them, bone them, and, and toss them with a bit of flour on the hot plate in the barbie, They're, and have a crisp salad. They're just magnificent. But really, the ones I've lost, they are, they've just been busting up big gear, big gear. But you see, because it's a set line, they can only go so far. Well, they just keep going. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they're very strong, very strong. And that that one you got fishing for whiting, that's a phenomenal capture. But was that flushed out? Do you think due to the the big rains? Yeah, well, they, they like the rain. They like the rain. They like the change of tide. They like the murky water. I've got everything covered, but I can't catch them. <laughs> well, you've done it right. Two, two out of five. They're, they're five. You're two. It's stinker on the big fish. Have you heard much about back home at, at Fingal? Anything going on there? Yes, unfortunately. Things haven't been... Well, it's very, very busy, of course, because Fingal is just such a magnificent place. And and I'm happy for the... It's tourist time. And so I'm quite happy to stem, step back and say, righto, tourists, it's all yours. Go for it. But sadly... Um, all the red weed and the and the um, you know that kelpy stuff and it flowed into into Fingal Bay and it all went sort of in the sun. It gets a bit smelly and really it's not pleasant. And you can't catch fish. You can't catch fish if all that kelp and cornflake weed are floating around and, and rotting. Uh, but holiday makers don't care much about that. They don't, probably haven't even noticed it. <laughs> but they. The regulars there say, no, the fishing in Fingal Bay is not what it should be. But I'll tell you what else I'm very involved in up at the Tweed, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really having a great break up, up on the Tweed, but I'm very uh, involved in, in local history, as I am in Port Stephens. And I, um, because both my grandparents on both sides of the family were pioneers of the district, and so I just went and walked around the old area that I grew up and went and found some old friends that I haven't seen for years and years. But you know what? Probably the what struck me most through when I walked through the bush uh, out around the Eukery Bar Passage at South Tweedheads, um, when I was a kid, the trees were full of koalas. You know, you can't find one anymore. No, it's, it's so, really it's, sad. Yeah, well, I, I had a, a group with me of those that I sort of lived with 60 years ago, and we all agreed. We said, where where are all the koalas? Koalas, they were everywhere. I mean, you'd see them in trees, and you didn't take a great deal of notice of them because there were so many of them. But now you can't, you can't find a one. Is there much habitat still left for them, Stinker? Well, there's your problem, you see. There's a lot of development um, where the where the beautiful trees were that they used to live in and, and gather in big numbers. That that's all been levelled. See, development roads, dogs, cars, koalas just really haven't adapted to that way of life. They're they're slow moving and they're just they're cruising and I know things have happened too fast for the poor old koala and really. Um, we all agree that that's probably the saddest thing. I mean, you can't stop development. There's no way in the world you can stop development. But you try your hardest to control it so that it doesn't impact on the um, on the beauty of the place or the natural resources. Well, um, unfortunately, I, of all the friends I spoke to, I said, have you seen a koala lately? They said, no, I haven't seen one for years. So, yeah, that's a bit sad. But um, back on the water, oh, gee. I mean, I'm up there, and the mud crabs are good. Um, the, the fishing, you never know what you're going to get. There's been a lot of uh, grunt of brim in the system. Now, they weren't there. Ten, or 20, ten years ago, you'd never catch one. Now, they're right through the system, way up the Tweed River too, not only in Terranora Lakes. 
So things are changing, Scott. They're they're a good eating fish too. The the, the grunter, they're uh, javelin fish. I think they're called their That's official right, name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you definitely get lots and lots of them up around Townsville. When I was living up there, they were the uh, a very regular capture in the in the rivers and, and the lakes. So um, yeah, I guess uh, maybe the, the the tropics are moving a bit south, stinker. Oh, something warm, of course. Now you remember? Do you remember that story that I told you that I? I was sat up one night trying to catch a mangrove jack and I got sick of it, so I went to bed and I put the line through the window and tied it on my toe. <laughs> I do. do you remember that? I hope you haven't tried that again because you, you need your toes for balance. <laughs> well, for those who haven't heard it, I'll just give you the quick version. But these mangrove jack have been terrorising and tantalising me for a long time. And I've got a pontoon out there now. And But before I had the pontoon, I've set a line out there, and it's about a 35-pound line, and I've got a bit of mullet on it. And, and I can say my bedroom is around about 20 metres from the river. So I thought what I'll do, instead of me sitting here on the riverbank waiting for the mangrove jack, I'll go to bed. And I'll put the line through the window, tied on my toe. And once the fish get, gets on the line, I'll feel it, it'll pull on my toe. And so I thought at the time I thought that was a good idea. A lot of my ideas aren't as good as I really think they are. <laughs> anyway, so off I go to the bed, put the, put a, a, uh, poke the line through the window, pull it through, then I walk through the house, get into bed and tie it around my toe. And I think, well, this is fair enough. And then off I went to sleep. Well, you wouldn't want to believe it. My leg flies out of bed and it heads towards this window and there's a mighty fish on the other end. But I can't get out the window. There's a fly screen on the window and I can't get out. And I think, oh, no, what do I do? So I had to try and undo the fly screen, then climb through the window. Oh, gee. And all it was was a big brim. <laughs> <laughs> and Stinker, I'm, I know, you know our listeners will be rolling their eyes, but you're not pulling their leg. No. This is the funny part about it. The strange part of this story is it's fair dinkum. I mean, I've tried just about every possible way to get these mangrove jacks out of the water. I can hook them. I can hook them. That's not a problem. But getting them out of the water and into the kitchen, that's where the problem lies. I don't mind it when the fish win every now and then. Tight line, stinker. Yeah, (laughs) they're winning this time, Scott. Hooroo. mate. That's the name of the book we're looking at next on The Big Fish. It's designed to save lives. It's called Tight Lines. And the author joins us up next on The Big Fish. It's The Big Fish, and I bet you know, because you're listening to this program, that rock fishing is the most dangerous recreational pursuit, sport, In Australia, more people sadly lose their lives, and it's so avoidable. Louise Lambeth has dedicated her 
time of late. Uh, she's a, a lifesaver of 16 years at Ocean Beach and a water safety educator and writer to trying to turn that around. Louise, welcome to The Big Fish. Thanks, Scott. And Louise, it's interesting your fishing journey because you had to learn how to fish to write a book to save lives as a water safety educator. Take us through the process of creating this wonderful book, uh, Tight Lines, which is our catch cry on the big fish. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Um, as a lifesaver, I've been involved in the Gone Fishing Program, which is run by Surfer Saving New South Wales. And our aim is to educate families um, how to be safe around the rock platform, wearing um, life jackets, checking the weather, having the correct gear as well too. And they asked me as, a, as an author, would I write a story on how to fish and put all those safety tips embedded in there very sneakily, but make it a fun book. And it was a bit of a challenge, but I was up for it, but I did have to learn how to fish first. Take us through that process, because you did a lot of really fun research for this book, and it's such an important book. It's such a fun book, but it's got such a, a beautiful subliminal message uh, that's evidence-based, because um, a lot of people help you do this, don't they? Absolutely. So the book was reviewed by um, Surf Life Saving Australia, who made sure all the coastal safety messages were correct and accurate. And that's a very big part of everything I do. I have it reviewed by peak drowning prevention bodies. The University of New South Wales um, Water Research Laboratory did one of my books, Design the Waterhole. Um, that, way, that was one about drowning in rivers, wasn't it? Drowning it? rivers and learning water safety skills. That's called Rowing at the River. And the first book, Annie in the Waves, um, was my first venture into, into writing. That was after the little boy drowned at Pearl Beach. And this is a message for everybody, but it's also very much targeted at people who were sadly overrepresented from different uh, parts of our beautiful multicultural community. Exactly. And and look, not everybody has opportunity to have water safety education, whether it's learning to swim or doing nippers or learning how to fish. So writing a book is like an additional intervention that we can do, give information to people that can go into their homes, their libraries, their schools, and they can have conversations that are really important about how to be safe around water. And when you're at Ocean Beach and you're still at Ocean Beach mm-hmm. Surf Club, a, a proud member there, a great club, you were really um, touched by an awful tragedy at the next beach to the south, uh, Pearl Beach. Um, and that really was the catalyst for you to start to use your great talent as a writer. You're very creative and, and good fun to hopefully save other families that trauma. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That was the thing that started me off thinking, you know, how can we do this differently? Um, what can we do that can... What, what happened there that your club was involved in that really touched you? There's a little boy, um, five years old, and he was down there with his family and he was playing that game where you run into, you know, as a wave draws back into the sea and then you race up when it chases you up the, up the um, beach again. And the family had like a moment when they turned to pick up their bags and the little boy hadn't left the side of the beach when we called and the wave roared in and his little legs couldn't outrun it and he was dragged back into the deep water. And Ocean Beach and Yamina were part of the call-out along with emergency services. But that really affected um, our whole Central Coast community. Mm. And, and that's a very interesting beach. It's a really deep gutter straight off the shore break. That's right. The beach morphology is very dangerous there. Um, the sand just is it's a deep drop off, but you've got the surging waves that don't have a chance to build up and break. They just surge onto the beach and then they draw back into that deep drop off. And, and you're trying to get this message out to the kids, mm. you know, the, the kids of primary school age. Uh, if they come from the call community, they can then share it with their parents. Is that right? Absolutely. Children are, um, are very much 
um, proactive about talking about um, safety as well too. So if you give them the information, they can share that with their parents. And sometimes if they come from a cold community, their parents might not have the English, so the children are able to share the information as well too. Uh, sustainable elements yeah. as well. It's really a good education tool, isn't it? Absolutely. And I wanted to make the book fun because fishing is fun. I found that out. Um, many, many components to it. But when I was learning, learning to fish, um, when I was writing the book, I had to hop onto YouTube and just look how did you cast. And then I had to get a fishing rod out and just have a go at that too. But then I had to think about you know, how do I put that into words? How do I make it fun? So what we've got is um, Roy is our main character and he's going into high school next year and he's going into high school with the school bully um, and none of his friends are going. So he's a little bit challenged by this bully. So he wants to beat the bully and he's going to beat him by uh, winning the tournament. But Jack, uh, Roy doesn't know how to fish. So he asks his big brother Jack to help him to fish and Jack and Roy have this wonderful relationship as Jack is imparting um, and helping him to learn how to fish. So we've got him here. He's learned a little bit about casting and um, Jack's going to take him out now to target Trevally. Jack wants to target Trevally. So we're using pilchards for bait. He reckons Trevally are fighters and a good fish for practising landing. I bait up and I move to the end of the jetty. Take a wide stance to keep you steady, Jack says. It's deeper here, so you won't need to cast too far. Aim just short of the orange boyo. Zing! My line soars over the water and plops right next to the boy. Nice one, Jack says. Immediately I feel a tug on the line, then another. Take the bait, I silently plead. The line goes taunt and the tip bends and I feel the drag. Zit, 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 my line's running out. The rod is flexing, my heart is hammering. I'm pumped. Fish on, I cry. Jack appears beside me. As the spool slows, I lower my rod and begin to reel the fish in. It's fighting hard. Do you reckon it's at Trevally? I say, breathing through my, hard through my nose, my chest rising to draw the air in. Work it, Roy, he says. You're doing great. My arms are straining as I draw the fish towards me. Jack crouches on the edge of the jetty, the net ready to scoop up my catch. Trevally, Jack confirms as he reaches and slips the net under it. I'm a bit surprised at the Trevally's size. It felt huge on the hook, but it's smaller now that it's been landed. Jack measures it at 25 centimetres. It's not a legal catch, so too small to record. Go and get your parents, Jack says to the fish as he flips it back into the water. You've done your research. That is exactly how they fight. They, they pound for pound, the silver trevally that we catch here locally on the New South Wales coast uh, and the bigger species like the Goldens further north, they pull like freight trains. Did you get to tangle with the Trevally or was that through, through uh, people telling you how hard they fight? That was for me researching how hard they fight. Scott, I have caught um, 15 toadfish <laughs> and and one small tailor. <laughs> but I'm not done yet. I better get you out in the boat because yes. the silver Trevally are about at the moment and are just a lightly weighted uh, nipper or a, uh, they, they do like to feed in that sort of upper part of the water column so you know between yeah. midwater and, and the surface a live nipper they just can't resist it but you'll often not catch them if you're fishing on the bottom for whiting so we'll have to get you out oh, i'm up for and, it and particularly on four pound line if you get a, a 40 centimeter trevally happy days you're fighting it for for about 20 minutes they go round and round in circles and they're very nice to eat too they're nice uh, sh very nice sashimi so uh and, and great that you get the, the the bag limit because some people wouldn't be aware that we have very strict um, rules and regulations to, to make our fisheries sustainable 
And uh, just, it's a great way to learn, isn't it? Uh, you've really hit on something. Who's funded this? How did you get uh, the, the, the money to get it together? Okay, so I'm, I'm what they call a social and creative enterprise. So all my efforts um, that I put in, um, I, I don't charge anyone for. Um, and I make my um, books as freely available for anybody as possible. But this book, um, the illustration and the editing um, and the book design was funded by Surf Life Saving New South Wales. So they will use this for their gone fishing program. But it's available for everybody to have because it's a fun book, encourages reading, I'm sorry, encourages fishing uh, and reading as well too. But let's get our kids, you know, out there and enjoying an environment. And Roy does learn through fishing. The problems he has with the bully just seem to go away. Not They don't go away completely, but it helps him to cope a lot better with life just by getting out there in that beautiful environment and having a challenge um, and spending time with his brother was great. And I believe you researched a lot of the book, uh, just watching people fish off the, the shore, families having fun at Watson's Bay yep. inside Sydney Harbour, which is a really safe place compared to the ocean rocks as well. So uh, you picked up some, some good stuff there. Would have been a fun book to research. Oh, it was, look, I had to go to Fisherman's Wharf and ask them, ask them to show me how to gut a fish, um, which was great. So thanks, Merv. A big shout out to you. <laughs> Talk about hands-on research. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Louise Lambert, thanks for joining us on The Big Fish. Congratulations on Tight Lines. Well done to the people who got behind it, uh, New South Wales Surf Life Saving as well. It's, a, it's an absolute lifesaver, literally. And a great read. Good fun for the kids. How do people get a copy? Uh, at the moment, it's only through my website, which is louiselambeth.com. If your local Central Coast book face, um, Erina, and also the Gosford Regional Art Gallery shop. But it will soon be up on the Surf Life Saving Australia website. So anybody in Australia will be able to buy it from there. All right. The aim of the book is to help children learn how to be safe and teach their families, particularly if they're new arrivals to Australia, uh, safe fishing to prevent accidental drowning and sadly fishing and drowning uh, too much of it. So uh, good work. Well done. Let's hope we can save a few lives and educate some people along the way. Thanks, Scott. Louise Lambeth there on The Big Fish. Get out of it, bloody seagulls. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.